I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa Simone, And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on how taxes may be playing a role in rising rents. Rising inflation is crimping the budgets of many households, some of which also have to worry about the price of rent increasing alongside the price of food, gas, and other daily necessities. In today's episode, we explain how taxes may have influenced the rising rent trend over the past decade, along with other factors at play. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. Here we are again talking about how everything these days seems to be getting more expensive, in particular rent. Well, you know that when the only way you could bring Senator Manchin back to the negotiating table is by renaming Build Back Better the Inflation Reduction Act, inflation's a bit of a big deal. Yep. Biden says beefsteak tomato. Manchin says grape tomato. It's a bit smaller, but it fundamentally still tastes the same, right? Thanks for making me hungry. Yeah, I didn't make you hungry. You are always hungry. That's not entirely true. Sometimes right after eating, I'm not hungry. And to quote Liz Lemon, I want to roll my eyes right now, but the doctor said if I keep doing it, my ocular muscles might spasm and eject my (laughs) eyeballs. Anywho, our goals today are first, to talk about how taxes influence the decision to purchase a home, either to live in it or to rent it out as an investor. And second, to explain how these tax incentives may be playing a fairly large role in today's rising rental prices. Yes, a recent report by Redfin indicates that median rents are up 15% over last year. Ouch. Some markets like Nashville, Seattle, Cincinnati, and my very own hometown of Austin have seen rent increases over 30% over the past year. Holy guacamole, 30%? Some were as high as 49%. It's cray cray. Okay. I remember when my landlord in Austin tried to raise my rent a measly 10% during the PhD program. And I told her I'd have to move out because my teeny tiny stipend wasn't going to cut it. Thankfully, she backed off. Also, she should have been paying you to live there and deal with the crazy property manager. But that's another story. Yeah. Sadly, landlords don't seem to be backing off these days. And inflation is just one explanation for rising rents. That's right, because taxes actually play a big role in the rent or buy decision and also in the decision to potentially buy a new home as an investment property to rent out to others. Right. So let's start with the tax benefits of buying a house to live in yourself. You can deduct property taxes up to $10,000. And if it's your first or second residence, you get deductions for the amount of interest you pay on your mortgage, at least for mortgages up to $750,000. And there are a few things that are noteworthy in what you just said. I'm glad I'm glad I said something noteworthy for once. No, I was going to say, as always, there are a few noteworthy <laughs> things in what you just said. That $10,000 deduction that you mentioned for property taxes assumes that you aren't trying to deduct any other state or local taxes. True. Because remember, individuals cannot deduct more than 10000 total in state and local taxes. And that's regardless of whether you're married or single. Right. Second, $750,000 is a lot of money. Yes. For a mortgage. It's about twice the median home price in the U.S. as of 2020, although there has been a bit of a housing bubble since then that is driving prices up. The higher the home price, likely the higher the interest and the higher the tax deduction and benefit. And third, fortunate taxpayers get deductions not just for their first homes, but for their second homes. And that's happening when about 35% of households in the U.S. rent, 
which means it's possible they can't even afford a home to begin with. Yep. I think we've said on a prior episode that these tax benefits to homeowners fall disproportionately on the wealthy. Mm -hmm. This is driven in part by the wealthy owning more expensive homes that generate larger deductions, as you just said, owning potentially two homes that qualify for deductions, and of course, relative to renters at least, owning a home at all. And adding insult to injury, if you're fortunate enough to be able to afford your rent, you don't get any tax deduction for your rental expenses. No. So there's already a big disparity in tax benefits between renters and homeowners, which, by the way, could be impacting housing prices, effectively reducing the total cost of homeownership and thus driving up the prices people are willing to purchase a home for. And there's also a big disparity between owning a home as an investment versus owning it as your residence. Yes. And that's because investors don't have any cap on their property tax or mortgage interest deductions like actual homeowner dweller people do. Investors also don't have any cap on the number of houses they can claim deductions for. On top of all of that, they can deduct expenses for maintenance, repairs, and other aspects of property management as investors that homeowners can't take deductions for. All that does is make their after-tax costs of owning a home to rent potentially much lower than homeowners like you or me who live there. Exactly. And what's more, someone buying a home to rent can get a loan at a lower rate than you and I can get for a mortgage. And that further reduces their cost of purchasing a home. Plus, they can raise cash from investors in return for a share of profits, meaning they don't have to make periodic interest payments like you or I do to a bank. Okay, so all of these things make it seem like it's a lot less costly for an investor to purchase a house than it is for someone looking to live there. Yes. But most of these benefits that we're talking about, tax benefits, lower interest rates, they've been in place for a very long time. True. So for example, loan rates for individuals versus rental companies have always differed because there are different risks involved and mortgage interest and property tax deduction for home ownership have been around since I was in kindergarten. So since the early 90s. Yes, because that's when I was in kindergarten. Watching Beverly Hills 90210. I was a very precocious kindergartner. <laughs> also, just to bring it back, and lest anybody think that my time watching 90210 was wasted, you know, Jim Walsh was a tax accountant and he actually wrote a book called Last of the Dying Tax Shelters. Mm. Also, I'm pretty sure they rented their home. Also, I'm pretty sure you've watched way too much of that, if you know that. But my broader point, beyond the fact that you can learn a tremendous amount of real life knowledge from watching teen dramas. Don't listen to her. She's full of lies is that these economic forces have been in the mix for at least 30 years, but rental prices have only started rising dramatically over the past decade. Ah, and now I see you are also a very precocious 39-year-old. 29, 29-year-old. 29 oh, dear. Dearest listeners, fortunately, I can roll my eyes right now, and I am doing so profusely. But it's a good point that these factors have only newly played a role, and the reason goes back to the global financial crisis. Are you referring to when the federal government bailed out Wall Street while Main Street lost their homes to the housing bubble and subprime mortgages that they couldn't afford? Um, yep, ding, 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 that is what I'm referring to. The reason really, really big investment companies like Blackstone didn't invest in the housing market before the crisis was that it was a really time-intensive thing to do. Houses are typically purchased one at a time, that requires a lot of effort and due diligence on the part of analysts to decide whether a house was worthy of purchasing as an investment. And this is a really interesting point. So let's say you're a huge investor like Blackstone and you manage assets of nearly $110 billion in 2010. 
trying to take a position in the housing market where the median house price was $225,000, that's going to require a lot of work to find a lot of houses to even make a dent in the number of investments they have to make in any given year to make a return that's even going to register on anybody's radar. Exactly. It just didn't make any sense before. But the financial crisis and technology changed all that. It totally did. So first up is the financial crisis. A lot. And we mean a lot of people lost their homes to foreclosure, to short sales when they couldn't pay their mortgages anymore. That meant suddenly there was a lot of inventory, a lot of houses for sale all at once. Exactly. And what's more, oftentimes houses that have been foreclosed go up for auction. If there are a lot of houses that have been foreclosed, then there are a lot of houses for sale all at once at one auction. So let's take Gwinnett County, Georgia. I believe that's where Atlanta is. Yes. Atlanta spans multiple counties, but sure. Okay. Part of Atlanta. On one single Tuesday in 2012, right after the financial crisis, about 900 houses were auctioned off on the steps of the courthouse. Now, if you take 900 houses and use the median home price of 225K, you get over 200 million in housing assets sold off at a single auction. And now you're getting to the types of numbers that would make a large investment firm like Blackstone sit up and take notice. Exactly. You pair the sheer magnitude of the number of homes available with first, the fact that foreclosed homes often sell far below market value because the bank just wants to recoup its outstanding loan as quickly as possible. And they're not going to like sit there and haggle over prices to try to get a profit. Nope. The second, the fact that precursors to today's Zillow and Redfin had launched by then. And that made data on those homes suddenly very available and searchable right at the fingertips of an analyst for one of these firms. And now you have an asset class that a large investment manager can see dollar signs in. And we're going to call back to 30 Rock again, because this discussion of foreclosures is reminding me of the um, wonderful scene when Jenna refers to Kenneth as a Houston foreclosure of a human being. It's not a compliment. So back to your point about financing typically being cheaper for an investor than for someone looking to live in the home. Interest rates following the crash were as low as they've ever been. If an investment manager wanted to leverage their investment, mean, meaning use borrowed money, to increase their return on invested capital, they could do so very cheaply because it's the investor, not the lender, who gets all the upside. They could, and they did. Let's recap where we are so far. Because of a huge supply of underpriced houses for sale following the financial crisis, the new ability to use the internet to filter those houses by certain characteristics that would make them better investments, and really super-duper cheap financing, mm -hmm. big investment firms like Blackstone started investing in single-family homes with the aim of renting them out before selling them at a profit when the market rebounded. According to a house report, Corporate ownership of single-family homes rose an average of 3% per year since 2010. Again, we're taking this idea that corporations are people and need houses a little too far. A little bit. Corporation doesn't need a place to live. Now, Blackstone, who we've been talking about a lot, is a private equity firm, which is just a fancy way of saying a business that invests other people's money by acquiring private companies. And the key play for a private equity firm to make money while it's running the business is to cut costs and raise prices. So we'll come back to the cost cutting later, but raising prices means raising rents. 
Mm-hmm. Work done by Desiree Fields, a professor of urban studies at Queens College, finds that renters of single-family homes owned by these large investors typically experience higher rent increases, along with increases for other fees, things from having a pet to being a little bit late with your payment and paying a late fee. They experience these higher fees relative to other renters. For example, tenants of corporate-owned houses interviewed in Atlanta, Los Angeles, and Riverside stated that rents increased by 37 to 53%. Oh my gosh. And voila, you have one explanation for rising rents over the past decade, the increased ownership of houses by private equity firms like Blackstone. But as is so often the case, not every community was impacted by these new investors entering the rental market. No. These firms are very strategic, so they chose to enter markets with relatively tight housing supply. Given housing construction slowed significantly during and after the Great Recession, when the U.S. built fewer homes than in any decade since the 1960s, these housing supplies were only tightened. Fewer houses makes it easier for investment firms to raise rents because renters have fewer other options. They also chose to enter markets with a ton of foreclosures, right? Because mm-hmm. they needed that that bulk of houses that they could purchase all at once. Yep. Okay, but um, not every community was equally impacted by the housing bubble. Sadly, no. Although in total, American households lost an estimated $7.7 trillion in wealth during the financial crisis, foreclosures disproportionately affected lower-income homeowners and homeowners of color who received subprime mortgages from banks. Black and Latino homeowners were 71 to 76% more likely to lose their homes than white homeowners during the crash. And if you lose your home and now you're renting, your landlord may be a very large corporation with no ties to the community other than that investment. And that means they're less likely to want to invest in their properties for maintenance and improvements which aligns nicely with that cost-cutting objective that you mentioned earlier. Yep. There's also evidence that they are 68% more likely than smaller landlords to evict somebody. But at least those evictions should have stopped during the pandemic due to the eviction moratorium, right? Sadly, no. In the end, different states put different moratoriums in place. And in many cases, there were exceptions to the moratorium for things like older units, low-income housing, and other factors. Plus, in most cases, the eviction moratoriums have been struck down by courts or expired. Lovely. So unfortunately, this buying spree by corporations after the financial crisis hasn't stopped. Investors have found the single family market so lucrative. According to a House committee survey, the five largest owners of single family rentals in the U.S., these are Invitation Homes, which was the firm created by Blackstone, American Homes for Rent, First Key Homes, Progress Residential, and Amherst Residential, on average, they increased their housing stock from 2018 to 2021 by 27%. That's 76,235 additional homes. And in total, Invitation Homes, the Blackstone Company alone now owns 82,000 single-family homes. And I just want to mention that American Homes for Rent, it's the number four. And so you you just, you can't trust a company that swaps out the number four for the word four. Yeah. Now, in some cases, it was our own federal government that helped fund these purchases. What, what? Yeah, a little disappointing. So in 2017, a $1 billion deal between Fannie Mae and Blackstone came under scrutiny, rightfully so. Fannie Mae's charge is to help provide affordable financing to homebuyers, which it does primarily by purchasing loans or issuing or guaranteeing mortgage-related securities. 
In this case, it guaranteed a loan by Blackstone that enabled the investor to obtain a better borrowing rate to purchase more single-family homes. What? What? I'm not really sure that a large investment company needs a government subsidy backed by taxpayer dollars to help juice their already really high returns. This whole thing is just so gross. Also, according to that recent House survey, those demographic trends we discussed of more homes being bought up in communities that have more Black and Latino uh, renters have persisted over the past several years, despite the government actually taking a role. Yuck. Yeah, the average population in the top 20 zip codes held by the five surveyed companies is over 40% Black, and 40% is over three times the percentage of the Black population in the entire U.S., these more recent purchases are happening in neighborhoods with 30% more single mothers than the average neighborhood. And on top of that, they've increased fees by approximately 40% per year during the survey period. And apparently the thirst for single family investment homes only increased during COVID. Given very low interest rates to invest with, but high demand for single family homes, when everybody decided they needed more space because they were home all the time, but supply chain issues meant fewer homes were being built, due to increased costs of construction. High demand paired with low supply meant house prices became unaffordable for many, but I'm thinking not for those big corporations. Right, and unaffordable prices for many means more renters. So a good investment opportunity during COVID. And we haven't even touched on the impact of Airbnb. A 2020 study estimated that a 1% increase in Airbnb listings in an area leads to increasing rents and house prices. Another study by Lee et al. published in Management Science, an academic journal, finds that Airbnb, quote, mildly cannibalizes the long-term rental supply. And not in that good Hannibal Lecter way. Is there a good Hannibal Lecter way? Absolutely. I don't think he mildly cannibalizes anything. Perhaps one of the oddest things you ever said. Best movie, best movie of all times. Anyway, the bottom line uh, to this tale of darkness is that investors are helping shrink housing supply and drive up housing prices so that they can keep their renters captive. It's truly wonderful. And now to quote Jack Donaghy talking about Kenneth, the middle class is dying. You'll be renting forever. Until you can't even afford to rent anymore. Exactly. All right, time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I am really super duper hoping that you can bring something good to the table because I'm just depressed. Yeah, I agree. This is this has been a pretty depressing episode. But I can see at least one good thing coming out of our conversation so far. Bring it. Well, I like that the House Committee on Financial Services held a hearing on these issues. And this is recent. They held it earlier this year. So it's finally getting some attention that rental prices are going up, that housing prices are going up, and that these investment firms are playing a role. Now, it's finally getting some attention despite the best efforts of researchers in the media who've been trying to raise awareness of this issue for years. But maybe something good will come out of these hearings. Okay, that's fair and that's optimistic. I'm glad that someone in government is finally taking notice. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the word finally is key there. Yeah. I mean, it's 2022. Yeah. Blackstone created a subsidiary called Invitation Homes to invest in the single family housing market in 2012. 
So it's been 10 years of corporate landlords cutting costs while raising rents. 10 years. I mean, that is kind of lightning speed for the government, to be fair. But yes, we've uh, quickly here moved on to the bad. Which is so unusual for us. Indeed. Um, Not only is it a little frustrating that this escaped government attention for so long, but it also just seems like just so unfair. So unfair. Financial institutions preyed originally on lower income households. They pushed them into subprime loans and houses that they couldn't afford. This was before the crisis. And then when the rug got pulled out from underneath these homeowners, those houses, those same houses that they bought that they couldn't afford are being rented back to them at higher rates and in worse conditions. It's messed up. I totally agree. And I remember when we bought our first home in Phoenix in 2006, and I remember going to the bank with my little $43,000 a year PwC salary and a husband who was racking up law school debt. And they were like, yeah, do you want a quarter of a million dollar home? Yes, please. Let us give that to you. I remember sitting there thinking you should not be selling me a home right now, (laughs) but they did it. And you bought it. And I bought it. But the point being, yeah, they were given mortgages to people that really shouldn't have had mortgages, myself included. And now for the ugly, um, because it hasn't gotten ugly enough so far. Yeah. These large private equity firms first got into the rental market by buying up foreclosed homes following the Great Recession. But they found it so lucrative, they've only expanded their investment. Right. Because there are only so many single family homes you can buy. 82,000 apparently. But they love being landlords so much, they've started entering other housing markets too. In particular, apartment complexes. According to ProPublica, private equity is now the biggest source of financing for the 35 largest owners of multifamily buildings, representing over 1 million apartments. The share of apartment buildings taking private equity financing has risen over the past decade from 33% to 50%. So the stories abound of private equity property managers taking over a building, cutting costs, hiking rents. And the worst part is that they appear to be getting better financing courtesy of, you guessed it, our federal government. This time in the form of Freddie Mac, which is the nation's largest rental housing financer. Freddie Mac is actually a publicly traded corporation, but its congressional charge is to support home and apartment purchases by buying loans from private lenders so they can keep making more loans. ProPublica's analysis indicates that 85% of Freddie Mac's biggest apartment complex deals were backed by private equity. And the worst part, the ugliest of the ugly. Yes, the ugliest of the ugly is that the more of the rental market these firms control, the less competition there is and the less supply of alternative rentals there is. So they can just keep jacking up rates and providing nothing in return in the form of maintenance or security or even taking out the trash because renters have no alternative. The problems just keep compounding and uh, we're moving in the wrong direction here, people. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.